The lesson this morning is from Joshua. And Jane has detailed for you and for the children how the battle plan went. Let me read again the promise of God that precedes it in verse 2 of chapter 6. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. The strategy that God used with Joshua was not the normal strategy. But sometimes we find ourselves in difficult and strange situations, and it calls on us to have the courage to act in ways that are new and different. And one of our own, uh, retired General David Reed, describes how this took place in the Battle of the Bulge, if you'll look at the video screens. I'm thinking of uh, fearless response, uh, and I, I think of uh, a battle during World War II uh, around Christmas time when the Germans had uh, mustered a great number of forces, in fact, two panzer armies uh, facing the Allies, unbeknownst to the Allies, a tremendous breakout uh, was planned by Hitler and his uh, generals. And the result was uh, they came across the line undetected. And they came into an area uh, that was a responsibility of the 8th Corps uh, in uh, the Ardennes Forest around Belgium. Forces were embattled and had very little time to prepare. And the 101st Airborne Division was available to the generals on the American side to rush to the aid of the beleaguered defenders uh, of the area around Bastogne. The commander was not their regular commander, uh, but the third in line, uh, General Anthony McAuliffe, who was an artillery general for the 101st Airborne. In the course of uh, the crossing of the borders and because of the terrain and the good defense around Bastogne, uh, the German army actually uh, was able to surround the town of Bastogne. And their relief, that is the American uh, defenders from outside that surrounded area, uh, were down to the southwest and consisted uh, in large part of Patton's Third Army. But unless they could get there in time, uh, Bastogne would fall and Hitler's objective may have been uh, obtained. The forces were beleaguered uh, in part because the weather was severe and they couldn't uh, get their allied air support. Uh, their artillery couldn't very well be aimed and so uh, they were gradually being squeezed. And on the 22nd of December, the German commander in charge of the force that was to take Bastogne sent a message uh, to the commander at Bastogne uh, with four people uh, holding a white flag of truce. And the message was, surrender Bastogne or be annihilated by the German artillery. Uh, Anthony McAuliffe, who was awakened with this message, immediately sat up and said, Nuts! <laughs> and one of his commanders that was going to translate that for the Germans said, I can't tell him nuts. <laughs> I've got to tell him what it means. And so 
they thought about it for a while, and there was no good translation. One of them was to go to you know where. Uh, but the message that was written was nuts. Courage in the face of this uh, ultimatum was based upon the people that surrounded him and the units that had uh, fought to get into place to re, uh, repel the German force. Uh, to wind up the story, of course, Bastogne held against tremendous odds, uh, and the, uh, the Battle of the Bulge uh, was uh, fought by, Panzer's, uh, by the, uh, Patton's army that came up from the southwest and drove into the salient and uh, eventually cut it off. And that was uh, Germany's last great effort uh, to break out. And from then on, they were destined for defeat. Uh, one man, uh, not uh, selected initially to be the commander, but was in the place uh, to reflect uh, what he knew uh, he must do. He'd been told to hold Bastogne, and his answer to the uh, ultimatum was nuts. No doubt you are aware that this is a spring break week, and a lot of people spring break go to uh, the mountains, and some go to the coast. I go to movies. And one of the things I did with one of my sons is I went to the movie The 300. And uh, as you may know, it's, it's, it's sort of historical. It's uh, the story of a very unusual military tactic. The Spartans are being threatened by more than 100,000 soldiers of the Persian king Xerxes. And they decide to launch a preemptive strike against this landing force of 100,000 with 300 of their best armed guards and some soldiers that join them from a neighboring city-state. And they decide on this counterintuitive strategy to attack this much larger force because they can force them or funnel them into a narrow place that we've come to learn as Thermopylae. Well, I won't spoil the movie for you, but except to say that the counterintuitive strategy works to some extent. Uh, and the same strategy in reverse, though, is interestingly tried many centuries later when the British should decide to attack Braveheart William Wallace. And as they come after William Wallace, they need to cross the Fourth River. And they decide uh, when there's, only a, there's a place they can ford it a mile away, but for reasons known only to the commander, they decide to try to cross a narrow bridge and attack that way. And so Wallace, with a much smaller force, just defends the small face, uh, space of the bridge, and the Battle of Stirling becomes a turning point in their battle against the superior British forces. A similar strategy, uh, this time with different results. It made me start to wonder about different strategies in battle and why some work and, and some don't. And I'm not completely sure. I've thought of some interesting uh, strategies that I've seen and heard about. The most fascinating I read about this week was from the French army. When in the earliest days of the landmines, they were trying to decide how they would protect their soldiers against landmines. And so what they came up with was an iron boot that the soldiers would wear. And when they stepped on the landmine, they assumed they would be uh, protected. And well, what happened was they never found out if it, if it work, would work because the boots were so heavy and the soldiers moved so slowly that snipers picked them off before they ever got to the landmines. A strategy that didn't work so well. Uh, another strategy that's certainly famous throughout history is the strategy of Pickett's Charge under General Robert E. Lee, uh, crossing an open field 
uh, to attack a fortified Union defense. And it didn't look like it worked so well. But what's interesting to note is that military historians will tell you that nearly a year earlier, Lee used the same tactic with great success. Why sometimes do plans work and sometimes they don't? I suppose we could attribute it to personnel or maybe execution or uh, maybe there are other factors. Well, when you come to Joshua today, why did Joshua's plan work? Was it personnel? Certainly Joshua was a faithful man. Was it execution? Well, he certainly obeyed to the letter everything that God had told him to do. Or was there something else? I thought back to the story of General Anthony McAuliffe surrounded at Bastogne. And one of the things that happened after he refused to surrender, as you may know, the weather cleared. He got air support and Patton was able to move forward. But what Donna reminded me was, if you think about the clearing weather, you may recall that Patton had his chaplains pray that the weather would clear. What makes the difference in battle? Is it personnel? Is it execution? Or is there another more significant variable? For Joshua, the more significant variable, of course, was the presence of God himself. This variable was also seen in the story of Gideon that we read earlier today. Gideon amasses a force of 32,000, and he's to be sent against the Midianites to try to hold and secure the promised land that Joshua helped him take. And Joshua, um, excuse me, Gideon is told by God that 32,000 is way too many troops for God's purposes. And so Gideon says, all right, anybody who's afraid can go on home. Well, 22,000 leave. He's left with 10,000. God looks around and goes, mm, still too many. And God gives specific instructions to Gideon on how to separate the troops by the way that they drink uh, water. And Gideon is left with a major reduction in force from 32,000 to 300. And with that 300, Gideon goes forth and the battle is won. Why? Because of the execution? Because of the personnel? No, it was something else. It was, as Jane pointed out to the children, the God, the King of the universe that made the difference. This is what I'd like to talk with you about this morning. We live in very difficult and changing times and problems come at us like enemies from all directions. And I think oftentimes we, like Joshua, wish we could hear a clear word from God. Give, be given a battle plan. Strange as a battle plan may even seem at the moment, but just to know it's from God, to use it, to help us in our life. So this is what I'd like to do. I'd like to walk you through a few ways that you can receive God's battle plan for your life. A few ways where you, like Joshua and Gideon, who have gone before you, can know that you have heard the voice of God. How can you hear God's voice, the only reliable guide in a very difficult journey full of twists and turns and obstacles all along the way. Let me make four suggestions. The first is this. If you want to get in touch with God, the permanent address at which God can be found is the Bible. Note this from God's instructions to Joshua in Joshua chapter 1. First thing God says to Joshua is, I want you to meditate on my words day and night. Starts with that, and then God goes on and says, now Joshua, be courageous and bold. But it begins with, Getting in touch with God through God's words, through the Scripture. So my advice to you this morning is to do just that. And the basic place to start is when you go home today, when you've got time, Exodus 20. Start with the Ten Commandments. Look them up. Ask if you are living according to the basic instruction battle plan that has come from God. 
And then move forward to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew, where Jesus takes this basic instruction and applies it in more personal and appropriate ways for our life. And begin to see if your life is in alignment with the basic plan that God has delivered. Start there. The first place to hear from God is through God's Word in the Bible. Here's the second place. Be in close connection and fellowship with other Christians. One of the things God knows about us is that we have difficulty hearing God's voice. And so God, to do us a favor, often puts his own words in the mouth of another person. Dallas Willard, a wonderful uh, theologian in Ephesus, says this, that anyone who plans to hear God's voice but is not in fellowship and connection with other Christians doesn't really plan to hear God's voice. Because God so often decides to speak to us through others. Look at the Old Testament, how many times God puts God's words in the voice of a prophet or another messenger to deliver the words that God wants heard. One of the things that we do at this church is the worship leaders gather and pray before every, uh, every Sunday morning before the services. And the woman asks God if there's anything God wants to share with us, and then she'll bring scriptures and words. Last Sunday, I was thinking about this on the way to church, and I was wondering, God, is this really a fruitful exercise? Are you really in this? And sort of laid down the gauntlet for God. And sure enough, it was time to pray, and, and the woman brought the scripture verse from God. And the scripture verse is one that she could not have known that I had spent the last two weeks um, meditating upon. But God knew it. And God knew that I needed to know and hear from God and know that God was there. And God used another person to confirm it. There are no Lone Ranger Christians because you are counting, uh, you're discounting God's voice. You're going to eliminate God's voice if you don't find yourself in relationship with other of God's people. A third way that God speaks is through circumstances. As you look at your life and look at doors that are opened and perhaps doors that mysteriously got closed, it's always appropriate to step back and say, God, what are you doing here? What are you trying to show me? What are you trying to teach me? In fact, now for a couple centuries, Christians have called the Bible people and circumstances the three great lights. They are the ways that God tries to illuminate our path in a dark and confusing time like the people of Joshua found themselves in in the wilderness. And circumstances are one way by which you can see what God is wanting to do with you or do through you for others. But I want to add a fourth uh, this morning, and that is I've learned that often God speaks in what Elijah discovered was a still small voice. Often through Scripture, very often in my life through other people, often as I sit down and, and meditate on the way things have gone or the way things have turned, uh, but often now I'm learning that God will sometimes just speak a quiet word into my own life. It's not an audible voice, but it's a voice I can recognize. And, and you, you've heard it yourself when suddenly it's planted in you that I need to call that person. Or it's planted in you that I need to write a note. Or it's planted in you that you need to take some action. Or that someone, maybe you haven't talked to them in three months, is in need of you. And you listen to that quiet voice and you pick up the phone. Or you respond. The church through the ages has called that voice an impression or a leading from God. It's, it's a still voice. But it's one that as you learn to heed and listen to, you'll find that it is reliable as you have been in study and prayer uh, and are connecting with God, you'll find that God will start to use this route of that quiet voice as well. 
Last week I had written a sermon as I normally do on Thursday. And I got one of those impressions. And they don't come often in regards to the sermon. But this one came clear. Change the order. What you were going to talk about first, talk about last and emphasize it and hit it really hard. Some of you may remember back last week, but the very last thing I tried to tell you was that you can serve God wherever you are. God had put on my spirit that there are people who think their job is just too secular, that their life is just too crowded, that they've got any number of excuses for why they can't serve God where they are. After the services at each service, someone came forward to me or to one of the prayer ministers and said, that is exactly where I am. I Pray with me. I just don't believe I can serve God where I am. God knew it. And God decided to put it on my spirit to pass it on to connect with those people. God speaks. And if we're listening, we, like Joshua before us, will hear that voice. But here's two cautions. First of all, when you think that you've heard something from God, stay on the line. If you think God has told you something, don't hang up. Because often God has more to tell you. Maybe it's in addition. Maybe even it's different as you go down the line. Certainly Joshua had seen this in his own experience. People were thirsty in the wilderness and they came to a place and God said to Moses, if you'll take a stick and strike that rock, water will come out. Water did. Sometime later they were thirsty again and complaining. God said to Moses, if you will speak to that rock, water will come out. But you remember what Moses did? Just like the rest of us, he did the thing, last thing he'd done, what he'd always done before. He took the stick and hit the rock when God had called him to speak to the rock. We have to stay in constant contact with God because the road changes. There are twists and there are turns and the enemy comes from different angles. And we must stay with him so that we will know how best to respond. We have a reliable guide in God who's gone this way before us in the wilderness. We cannot afford to cut off communication with God at any point. And then one final uh, caution, and that is this. If you decide that you want to listen to God and you start to hear God's voice, that will do you no good at all unless you have the courage to respond to what that voice is telling you. At some point, General Anthony McAuliffe had to decide if he had the courage to follow his orders that he had received that were clear to hold the town at all costs. At some point, the Spartan soldiers in the past at Thermopylae had to decide whether they were going to go through with the orders that had been given to them. At some point, you will need to have the courage to act on what God is telling you. Now, occasionally you'll learn that maybe God wasn't telling you that after all. But I believe that as God sees that you are faithful and you're trying with the little that God has spoken, God will begin to speak more and more to you. Remember, we learned last week that Jesus said the person who's faithful in a little to that person, God will give even more. And it will be a courageous act the first time you decide to act on what God has placed in your heart. But I believe it's really the only way and probably the most exciting way to live our lives. This past week, one of my children actually did get to go to the coast. He went to Port A with three friends from UT. And uh, they were there on a house right by the beach that another friend's uh, family owns. And then they packed up in the middle of the week to come, up, to come back to Austin, uh, lo- unload their stuff, load other stuff, and go back to meet with their family. So Ryan makes the trip from Port Aransas to Austin. He gets there. And they unload, and he calls me because the strangest thing has happened. 
They've unloaded. Two of the friends have left. It's just he and his roommate are left behind. And there, under their uh, SUV that they've taken to Port Aransas, is a spiny lobster. A crayfish snapping at them. And where it came from? Port Aransas? How did it get there? Was it a joke? Did someone stick it in the vehicle and it made the ride? Did it escape from a red lobster in Austin? Made its way to his house? You know, I wondered, and my favorite, my favorite theory is that the lobster made its way to the house there on the beach in Port A, got somehow in the undercarriage of that SUV, and went for a ride that he didn't quite expect, with speeds upward to 70 miles an hour, holding on for his life. Now, my father-in-law explained to me very carefully that I know nothing about cars, and it's impossible for that to have happened. But I wonder, because that's such a picture for our life. When we get in touch with God, God will indeed speak, and then we best hold on, because it will be the ride of our lives.